Hello, FNS fam. This is Michael Simone again, coming to you with part two of our special Eshray edition of Fertility and Sterility on Air. Just wanted to remind folks to go back and listen to part one, but also make sure you tune into the end of this episode, not only for the great interviews throughout, but also for a remarkable story from Dr. Byral Aiden out in the Ukraine. Again, try to be in a quiet place for that one because we had some technical issues mid-interview. But we'll also be putting up a transcript of that interview on the Fertility and Sterility website in case you want to read along. Enjoy! Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Well, I was lucky enough, I just came across Rick Legrow. Rick, what do you think of the ESHRI meeting so far? It's almost as good as an ASRM meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Have you learned anything new, or most importantly, should we be uh, continuing to be REI, or is this all genetics? Well, thanks for bringing that up, Kurt, because I think we're really being sold a bill of goods here, imagining that our future as reproductive endocrinologists is really just testing patients' embryos for genetic abnormalities to produce perfect children. So I think, you know, what I've learned um, here is that most of our testing is, is flawed and misinterpreted. Uh, and I think it gives both clinicians and uh, patients a false sense of uh, reassurance. Well, that's a pretty strong accusation. <laughs> Can you back that up with something you've seen here? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, I think it's been a little bit of paucity of data due to this is the first COVID meeting. And I think most of the trials I've seen have been uh, severely impacted, if not shut down, uh, during the COVID era. So I don't think we're seeing a lot of fresh data, more, I think, recycled stuff from uh, prior to to COVID. Uh, so, so your comment is that the claims we're getting about the success and the future of our genetic screening is really just claims. We're not really getting it supported by strong data. I would say so. You know, I think if you look at PGTA, I think what you can argue about that is that it's, it likely will um, speed the time to pregnancy by, I think, selecting embryos less likely to miscarriage. But I think if you look at what we're currently looking at, which is the result of the stimulation, oocyte retrieval, uh, single embryo transfer uh, strategy, is that you're going to see the same number of live births, whether the embryos are selected morphologically, whether they're selected by time-lapse photography or whether they're selected by, by PGTA. I was struck by a couple of talks where, by international groups where PGTA isn't even an option for them. They're worried about access for care, and for them, IVF works fine. We don't, they don't need all the genetic add-ons. Well, you know, I guess um, when we talk about, I think we at OBGYN and in REI are very susceptible to overutilization of resources, to jumping on the bandwagon for something that's that's new and especially that's technologically um, uh, oriented. And I think we all are aware of the flaws of fetal electronic fetal monitoring, and yet that has only been expanded and and uh, continues to be um, interpreted, maybe misinterpreted, and it hasn't lowered the cerebral palsy rate, which was which it was introduced for at all since its introduction, but it certainly um, changed the way that we do obstetrics. And I think PGTA similarly is 
in the U.S. is creeping in and becoming the norm. And I think the average patient thinks that, that this is going to give them a healthy, normal baby instead of just acknowledging it's a screening test of some cells that might not even represent what their embryo or fetus infant uh, comes from. I think I hear you saying two things. One is that um, once we adopt something as a norm, it's going to be very hard to get rid of it, especially if it's not especially, even if it's unproven technology. And the second thing is I don't think patients understand what we're actually telling them the test does. I mean, you know, again, you know, the, the you know, for instance, what's the, what's the false negative rate of a diagnosis of aneuploidy on PGTA? Nobody knows that because nobody is putting these embryos back. But that's something you'd want to know. And if you look at, uh, I know there's actually one abstract about this at ASRM last year that said someone was putting back these embryos and, and had a few live births, but at least let's go from the published data from Mosaic uh, embryos, you know, and, and, you know, prior to the publication of these data, everyone said don't put back a Mosaic embryo because it's not going to result in a, in a healthy, genetically competent individual, and yet apparently it, it's doing this, and, and you know, these embryos are selecting out the normal cells, as you would expect uh, would happen, um, for uh, rapidly dividing uh, um, um, conception. So. Yeah, I think I think we've known this for a while. We've had this debate, you know, even on our own ASRM journal clubs and, and podcasts and stuff before. But I think what it's really hard to understand is that when you have a lot of embryos, screening "quote unquote" the best might help in the short run. But, but there's harm to that. You're, you're probably discarding a lot of embryos and you're probably taking away a chance that, that, that a woman may or may not have because of um, the actual screening itself. Yeah. yeah. Interesting stuff. So I hope you've enjoyed the meeting here at ASHRAE. Anything you're looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the ASRM meeting in Anaheim. <laughs> as I am too. I look forward to seeing you there as well. Thanks, Thank Rick. Thanks, Garrett. My name is Dr. Emre Pabukcu. I'm working in Ankara, Turkey, and I am also a faculty of our medical school and also working in a private IVF center. So we just wanted to answer a question of a couple of years ago that what should be the optimal route of progesterone? And that's all. This is the story. <laughs> yeah, and I think that we're asking the same question in the U.S. What is the optimal route of progesterone for fresh cycles? What is the optimal route of progesterone for frozen cycles? So tell me a little bit about the trial that you did and what you're presenting at this meeting. Yeah, exactly. The, the fresh cycles. And now, you know, we switched our practical paradigm to, the, to cleavage to blastocyst stage embryo transfer cycles in fresh cycles. I think there is no controversial um, issue of which should which which luteal support should be chosen, even if you choose the oral, vaginal, or the parental. But you know, it's the, for the side effects. The parental progesterone is, I think, no longer uh, rational to use. In the on the other hand, the oral progesterone I know is not available in the U.S. market. However, two large, randomized, controlled non-inferiority trials of Lotus 1 and 2 already demonstrated that the 30 milligram of 
synthetic progesterone, didrogesterone is somehow superior than micronized vaginal progesterone in fresh embryo transfer cycles. So, but the, the real question is, what should we do in the frozen embryo transfer cycles? And we should precisely discriminate these cycles into two, the programmed, or in other words, HRT fed cycles, or natural and modified natural cycles. And when you talk about natural and modified natural, I think of those as cycles where women are actually ovulating and they develop a corpus luteum. Are we on the same page with that? Exactly. The 80% of our cycles, if we are going to proceed with the frozen cycles, is natural. Or we may trigger the ovulation by recombinant HCG, and the recent RCT demonstrated the comparable results with a natural uh, ovulation or the recombinant HCG. On the other hand, for the PCOS patients cases and then an unovulatory cases, and obviously you need to go with the programmed fat cycles, with estradiol patches or oral tablets. And it's much more easy to use, uh, much more easy for scheduling, but you know, it's ongoing controversial issue. Which one is better, the programmed or natural? It seems natural gives us some more higher implantation. What were the different arms in your trial? What did you compare? We compared intramuscular progesterone as it is still a standard of care in the United States. In many states, I know. I have a lot of uh, friends and colleagues working over there. The second arm is relatively higher vaginal doses and it is the also standard of care in Europe countries. And the third one is a new actor, the didrogestrone. It is very, very common in China, in Russia, in, in India, in the other part of the world. So I, I've noticed that at this meeting that a lot of the Europeans and elsewhere are using oral and vaginal progesterone. And I think in part because intramuscular progesterone is not available in Europe. Yeah, it's 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 really hard to use. It's the patient inconvenience is the major limitation of the intramuscular progesterone. It is, it's impossible to, to feel comfort as a lady if you prescribe intramuscular progesterone, but also it is uncomfortable to, to, to take the blood samples every day by day and measure the progesterone. So you had three arms in your trial and you randomized patients to one of those three arms. for Were those for programmed FET cycles? Exactly. The, the all uh, patients are managed with programmed HRT fed cycles. We used estradiol pills and six milligram per day till eight millimeters of endometrial thickness. And if we haven't achieved that, we upgraded the dose a little bit. And until, uh, if we achieve eight millimeters of thickness, we randomized, we electronically based system randomized patients into three arms. 40 milligrams oral didrogestrone, twice daily vaginal 90 milligram inserts, and 100 milligram in oil. And what did you find? The results, the initial implantation and the live birth rates are completely similar without statistically significance. And were those in blastocysts or were those in day three embryos? They are all blastocyst embryos and relatively good blastocysts. And we can define them as top quality blastocysts because they are young patients and we randomized these patients, we selected these patients. And so, just to be clear, were they visually good embryos or were they PGT euploid embryos? They are all morphologically good embryos. We had an implicated PGTA. And then what about live birth rate, miscarriage rate, 
Um, any differences that you saw there? Not at all. The, the, in the oral arm, the live birth rate was 40%. In vaginal arm, that was 38%. And in intramuscular arm, it is 43 something, 43 and a half percent, something like this. And miscarriage rates and biochemical pregnancy rates are all similar as well. And you know, we also uh, collected the patient convenience data, the side effect profile of these luteal support modalities and during the embryo transfer, during the first phone call, during the second visit, during the third visit, till 10 to 12 week of pregnancy. So why do you think the results of this trial were different than some of the trials that have been conducted showing superiority of intramuscular progesterone to vaginal progesterone? We have not so much trials in the literature. The most powerful studies came from United States. The Devin and colleagues from uh, the Shady Grove Fertility Centers, as far as I remember. The first study was published in 2018. They compared three arms, 400 milligram vaginal versus 400 plus intramuscular versus uh, intramuscular alone. And this trial was canceled due to very, very high miscarriage rates in the vaginal only arm. And you know why? The 400 milligrams is very, very low, especially for programmed fat blastocyst cycles. And the second RCT came on 2021. The same team conducted that trial. And also they revealed that 400 milligrams is not enough. In summary, if you are using programmed fat cycles and if you are insisting on only vaginal products, you should optimize your dose at least 600, maybe 800, maybe 1200 because a couple of papers that published already in the RBM online reported that if you multiply your vaginal insert doses or vaginal capsule doses, implantation rates are going to be higher and as well as miscarriage rates going to be lower. Fascinating. Yeah. If you are using vaginal only, no. Nowadays, and you know, in Europe, the rescue doses are now very famous and popular and we are also measuring serum progesterone that was levels. my next question is whether or not you're measuring the serum yeah. progesterone levels and do you believe that the serum progesterone levels can be adequately measured based on vaginal administration definitely no but it's also a valid for is it feasible to detect higher progesterone levels or it does it translate into very high endometrial levels no so uh, the vaginal progesterone and, um, absorbs rapidly from the vaginal lymphatics, but intramuscular progesterone make a very, very quick and high peak in the serum distribution. However, it is also a quite controversial issue of the misusing of vaginal progesterones and vaginal microbiomas that are quite different from each other. So it's quite an uh, interesting thing that one root cannot be uh, superior by detecting serum progesterone or endometrial progesterone levels. It's, it's still blurred uh, point of interest. All right. Well, I think a lot to think about here. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your research. Congratulations on a wonderful study that was conducted that I think is really going to add and perhaps change how we practice. I don't think so because it's a pilot one. 
it's a new one we don't uh, have enough patience to reach an 80% power we have to document it with a 10% non-inferiority margin you should allocate more than 300 patients in each arm but let's wait and see let's wait and see all right thank you so much thank you thank you Well, I am very excited to continue to welcome our speakers. I'm going to have you go ahead and just say your name and say where you're from. It's Agnes van Dijk and I'm from the Netherlands. And I could not be more thrilled to have you on here. We are going to talk a little bit today about the research that you're presenting on um, thyroid hormone replacement, which is a big topic in the U.S. So tell me a little bit about what your hypothesis was and what you guys decided to look at. So uh, the purpose our, of our research was to investigate the effectiveness of thyroid hormone suppletion in women with TPO antibodies who were youth thyroid and had recurrent pregnancy loss. And we thought that that, that might have a higher rate of life birth rate when we give um, levothyroxine. Um, so that, that was what we, what we did in a randomized controlled placebo-controlled trial. Which is impressive. And so just to, for our listeners, you're a resident in OBGYN, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so you did an RCT as a resident? Yes. <laughs> that's quite an accomplishment. So how did you decide, um, what was your endpoint that you looked at, and how did you decide how many patients to include in terms of sample size? So our endpoint was life birth rate, defined as um, the, the, the birth of a living child beyond 24 weeks of gestational age. And we thought that was the most important endpoint because that's what we want. We want a live birth. To calculate the amount of women we needed to include, we had uh, yeah, previous day, uh, yeah, literature and we thought when you give levothyroxine, it might increase the life birth rate with 20% and calculated with a, yeah, the, the, the analysis, we thought we needed to include two, 240 women. And so when you talk about recurrent pregnancy loss, how did you define RPL in your study? Uh, yeah, we defined RPL as two pregnancy losses, not necessarily consecutive. Yeah, that was my question. Yeah. Um, and so these women had normal TSH levels but elevated TPO antibodies. Yes. At what point did you start giving them levothyroxine? So we started uh, levothyroxine preconceptional and we continued until the end of pregnancy. Uh, and that was whether it was a live birth or whether it was a pregnancy loss, that was the end point of the trial. And what was your hypothesis going into it? So the hypothesis was that we thought, uh, so, so one of the uh, accepted hypothesis is that the presence of TPO antibodies can cause a, a chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis and because during so when in normal life the, the thyroid gland is functioning normally but then when the pregnancy uh, or in, in the early pregnancy there is an increased need of thyroid hormone and because of the reduced uh, or a deficiency of thyroid hormone we thought maybe that was the cause of pregnancy complications so when you supplement levothyroxine it might yeah, avoid those pregnancy complications in our case pregnancy loss Right, and I think that people commonly, I see this a lot in my own practice and in a lot of physicians that I interface with, I see a lot of people giving women who have RPL empiric thyroid hormone replacement therapy. 
So what did you find? So we find that the live birth rate occurred the same level in both groups. So 50% in the levothyroxine group and in the placebo group 48%. So that was not significantly different. So how would this change your practice? So it was not common to, to give levothyroxine in the Netherlands to these patients because we yeah we're a little bit more uh, first we have to find the evidence before we do it. Uh, so I think it won't change that much in the Netherlands, but I hope that in other countries where levothyroxine is supplemented, uh, in this case, it won't be done anymore. Yeah, and I think it's really important. I think oftentimes there's a publication bias where studies that have positive findings get published. And so I think it's really important that you're presenting this work and hopefully we'll be submitting this and um, we'll see it in print. Yes, it, it is, it's published um, recently in the Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology. Oh, that's excellent. Congratulations. Yes, yeah. yeah, so you can find it over there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really thrilled that we were able to thank convince you. you to come chat for a little bit. Yes. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your meeting. Thank you so much. All right, well, welcome back, listeners. We have Dr. David Adamson, or who's going to be telling us about ICMART and his presentation at ASHRA. So for our listeners who don't know you, can you give us a brief introduction? Sure. Thanks very much for having me today, Eve. It's great to be here. Uh, my name's David Adamson. I'm a reproductive endocrinologist and surgeon. I've uh, been in practice for several decades and have a long history with the ASRM, and it's great to be here with ASRM at the uh, ASHRA annual meeting after COVID and see everybody getting back together and seeing a lot of old friends. I know, it's fantastic. And we're also joined by Kurt Barnhart. And so my main question, I know you've done a ton of work with ICMART, but for our listeners who don't know what that is, what is ICMART? Uh, ICMART is uh, an acronym for the International Committee for Monitoring Assisted Reproductive Technologies. We officially formed ICMART as a nonprofit organization in the United States. And uh, currently, we have about uh, 70 or 80 countries from all around the world that every year uh, contribute all their IVF data to us. And we collect all the data, we harmonize the data, and then we analyze it, and we give reports. And we give report here at SRM, we give reports at SRM, and we publish our global results so people can compare and contrast uh, what IVF looks like around the world. David, can you briefly compare this to SART? Is ICMART a voluntary organization? And what, how much data do you think you're gathering from these places? That's a great question, Kurt. ICMART is entirely voluntary. We're actually a non-government organization or a non-state actor with the World Health Organization. And we know they're one of the smallest ones because we have a small board with about six people on our board. And we have another half dozen people who are regional representatives and a couple of special advisors. These people come from all over the world. Everyone is completely voluntary. Uh, they're basically all reproductive endocrinologists like ourselves. And SART has been a major uh, supporter of ICMART since its very beginning. And we're very, very grateful to SART for giving us support, uh, not only by providing us excellent data, because the SART registry, SART cores is a terrific data set. And we get excellent data from SART every year, participated since the beginning. So, so tell us, for those that are know the SART data like the back of their hand, what, what is the data in ICMARC that should most surprise us? I think the data in ICMARC that surprises us the most 
is how different IVF is practiced all around the world. We also know that over the years, the IVF results in the United States have consistently been somewhere between 30 to 50 percent higher than other countries. Now, for many years, uh, there was some legitimacy to the claim that that was because we transferred so many embryos. But that was not ever the only reason we had such good success rates. We have good success rates, in my view, for multiple reasons, but among them are we have excellently trained doctors, we have really highly resourced IVF centers. Uh, despite what some people misperceive, we actually have a lot of regulation in our IVF clinics, in particular for standards for personnel and for protocol standards and process standards, for which SART and ASR have, have literally been, in my view, global leaders in developing these. And so, for all of these and other reasons, uh, we've had outstanding success rates. Now, it's also true, uh, and uh, even you will know that I've promoted for a very long time uh, the importance of single embryo transfer, because uh, I actually happen to be an identical twin, and uh, unfortunately I'm a little uh, too old to be an IVF baby, uh, so I'm an identical twin, uh, so that wouldn't have been a multiple embryo transfer problem anyway. But uh, uh, the point is that we have had too many twins for a long time. And uh, in the last few years, of course, we've seen a dramatic reduction, and I give full credit to all of my colleagues in the U.S. for doing this. So we've been criticized for our higher model birth rate, which I think was legitimate criticism. And so we've had this uh, paradox of higher live birth rates, but uh, also higher twin rates. Now, what we're seeing is higher live birth rates, uh, but our twin rate is dropping very rapidly, as we know, and which is really wonderful. I just make one small plea here that uh, to state that we do not have to do PGT to do single embryo transfer, and I could not emphasize that too much. So the major difference to other countries are that we have higher live birth rates. We're now getting our twin rates down, and obviously triplets, which we need to. But it's also how IVF is practiced differently. In Japan, for example, they do almost very, very low stimulation. They do egg retrievals with no anesthesia, get a small number of eggs. Their population is much older than the United States, and they almost invariably put back only one embryo, even in older patients. And so their live birth rates do not look very favorable compared with ours. So is in, in China and Japan, is it considered a social norm that IVF is something that people have access to, and other countries just not so, or? Yes, that's correct. And the countries have different reasons. Uh, uh, for China, obviously, one of the reasons uh, for this, and their number of cycles has gone up dramatically in the last decade, is that the one-child policy has created a huge uh, demographic shift, which is creating economic and social and other problems in China. And so, as you know, they've quickly changed the policy to two-child, and now you can actually have more than two, but they're supporting that. Same things for other countries like uh, Israel, which has a very pro child uh, policy, and Japan does as well. In their own way, they do it a little bit uh, differently because, again, very low stimulation, almost no anesthesia, and the Japanese women uh, tolerate and seem to be able to manage uh, very brief uh, egg retrievals with no anesthesia. So they have a much lower cost, and so women do do multiple cycles. The U.S., though, still has the highest cumulative life birth rate, and I think we want to try to you know, maximize that in as few cycles as possible without adding a lot to the cost.
Yeah, well, I think it's fascinating. I think that the work that you're doing is incredible. And I think bringing the different countries together and learning best practices, I think ultimately will make IVF more successful, safer. And I think that conversations like these are incredibly important. So thank you. Thanks thank you, much. David. We could talk to you for hours, but uh, this little snippet where our audience will be very, very uh, appreciated. Well, so, thanks thank very much. We can all learn from each other, I think, would be my final message. So let's all learn together. And thank you so much for having me. Have a great meeting. Thanks for your time. Hi, uh, I'm Thomas Tapmeyer, head of the Uterine Biology and Gynecological Disease Lab at Monash University. And I'm happy to present my data on exosomes as biomarkers of endometriosis here at the meeting and I brought along Hannah. Hi, I'm Hannah Nasri. I'm a clinician and a, and a default candidate in obstetrics and gynecology from the University of Oxford. So I also presented my work on small extracellular vesicles and endometriosis. So tell us a little bit about what your hypothesis was and what you're presenting today. We started with the idea that, uh, as you know, it's difficult to diagnose endometriosis without full laparoscopy and looking at it. And at least that's true for the superficial peritoneal form of the disease. You can already diagnose deep endometriosis by ultrasound or ovarian cysts. But we needed something that can diagnose superficial lesions because they also cause pain and the stage of endometriosis doesn't necessarily correlate with the pain. And then we thought, what can we do to look at these lesions in the peritoneum without opening it? and look for the smoke or heat or whatever it produces. And we thought anything these lesions make. So briefly, I did cancer research before and then switched to women's health. And we looked at metastasis. And metastatic cells have to adapt to their new environment when they change location from the primary tumor to somewhere else in the body. They grow somewhere they are not supposed to grow. And they adapt their metabolism and things like that. And the idea is that um, endometriosis lesions do that as well. So similarly, you might be able to find something they make, something they do, and use that as a biomarker. And then we looked in peritoneal fluid because that washes around the peritoneum. And we thought anything these lesions will make or secrete, we should find in the peritoneal fluid first of all. And we looked at exosolar vesicles or exosomes as they used to be called before it was reclassified a bit. And um, because these vesicles are made by all cells in the body. And they have a lipid bilayer, so the cargo inside these vesicles is protected and the cargo mirrors whatever the cell has been doing. So the idea is if the lesions have a changed metabolism or anything else they do, they will produce extracellular vesicles that mirror this change and we should be able to detect that first in peritoneal fluid and this is what Hannah has been doing and then look in, in blood from the same patients to see if we can detect whatever it is that we find in peritoneal fluid in the blood and then develop it into a biomarker. Right, and I think that at first when I read your abstract, I thought, oh gee, are they thinking that women are gonna have to have a caldocentesis in order to extract the peritoneal fluid or a laparoscopy? And I guess not. The idea is really to find a blood biomarker where you can detect this within the blood. And so what did you find? First of all, we looked in peritoneal fluid, so maybe I hand over to Hannah for that. As Thomas had explained earlier, we look in peritoneal fluid because that's where the lesions are established. But um, as we know, small extracellular vesicles, they do travel uh, through the circulation. So, But we still don't know what's the rate of transition from peritoneal fluid uh, in blood. And um, 
I first looked into peritoneal fluid, so what we found is that the concentration of the particles or the small extracellular viscous do change throughout the menstrual cycle according to the various uh, stages of endometriosis. So stage 3 for endometriosis is highest in the proliterate phase and that sort of like decreases throughout the secretory phase and then it's lowest in the menstrual phase and it's the reverse for stage 1 to endometriosis. And what you can see is that in the control samples, it's the lowest throughout the menstrual cycle. But aside from the concentration, what's interesting is actually the protein cargo. So we found three proteins which are interesting to look at. Uh, one of it is CD44, which is found in this small extracellular vesicles. And from cancer studies, we have found that exosomal CD44 does have an effect for ovarian cancer. So ovarian cancer, for example, they produce all these exosomes with CD44, and then they're taken up by the peritoneal mesothelial cell layer that increases the CD44 in the peritoneal mesothelial cell layer, and that induces the secretion of MMP9, and that clears out the extracellular matrix of the peritoneal mesothelial cell layer, causing metastasis. So if you apply and take inspiration from this study into uh, endometriosis, this is what that possibly happening. So move on to ask, so then obviously the follow-up was you found these findings in the peritoneal fluid and then I'm, I'm assuming the next step was to look to see if you say yeah, so, so could pick up uh, the findings Exactly, then look in, in blood. Yeah. And I set this study up with Hannah at Oxford before myself moving to Australia yeah. in 2019 and then I thought I get students there and do the peritoneal fluid blood comparison and then of course COVID hit and everything shut down and we couldn't get samples so we're still very much behind in our schedule of collecting and comparing things. I could only present a few preliminary data and more to show that it's possible to do it than really de defining a biomarker just yet. Yeah, no, so what are the next steps for your work? Get more samples <laughs> and then do a comprehensive analysis of the findings that Hannah did in Oxford and what we produced at Monash in Melbourne and then we'll see where we are. And eventually I hope to end up with, uh, with either a, a newly developed device to test exosomes from blood for signs of endometriosis or to use a simple acclimatization test card type thing like people have developed for SARS-CoV-2 during the pandemic to, to make it easy to test for the virus. This kind of thing ideally would stand at the end of all this as soon as we know which proteins to look for. So how are you now um, assessing for proteins? I mean, what kind of how and for these exosomes how were you kind of Pretty much standard molecular biology, Western blotting, um, proteomics as much as possible. Of course, um, we do not always get a lot of material from the blood samples or the peritoneal fluids, so it tends to operate at the margin of what is doable at the moment. And I guess my question is, how are you collecting those samples? Are they in patients who have known endometriosis, or are you doing any sample collection from so-called healthy controls at the time of laparoscopy? Yes, we try to do so-called healthy controls, but of course no one undergoes laparoscopy without any reason. Uh, tubal ligations are one control group. Um, but again, with all the operations having shut down, we're still a bit behind because what they first restart are cancer operations and so on. So we're still moving, uh, at least at, at Monash, moving up the ladder to, to get uh, cases in the clinic again. So And, and you would just ask the surgeon nicely to get peritoneal fluid before they do anything else. Yeah. Right and then take peripheral blood from, from the patient. Yeah, fascinating. Well, thank you so much for being willing Thanks to share for having your work. Us. <laughs> thank you so much. Hi, my name is Signe Uptal, and I'm from uh, 
Norway. I work at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology in a town named Trondheim. So I think it's just fascinating and I don't think that there's a day that goes by where I'm not asked clinically by one of my patients whether or not ovarian stimulation leads to breast cancer and I think it's a really pertinent question for the millions of women worldwide that are going through IVF as well as the women who are donating oocytes to others. So tell me a little bit about what you found. Or We are working right now on a study on uh, breast cancer risk using Nordic registry data. We have nationwide uh, health registries in the Nordic countries and when we combine them we have really, really large study populations. So we've used a cohort from the Committee of Nordic ARTM Safety, which is a, a Nordic collaboration that has been going on for 15 years now. And we have a study population of slightly more than 2 million women with 110,000 women who have given birth after ART. And uh, when we follow these women for about 10 years, we see no increased risk of breast cancer among those who gave birth after ART. So my question along those lines is, can you tell me what your comparison group was? I mean, the question being that perhaps underlying infertility itself, a lot of time lends itself to, we know, medical diseases, especially cancers. And so how did you, you know, how do you begin to answer that question, whether or not it's the ART that maybe infertility is protected, but ART isn't? So how do you kind of differentiate these things? Well, we have compared women who give birth after ART to women who give birth after natural conception. And taking pregnancy into account somehow is important because we know that pregnancy in itself affects breast cancer risk. And in the longer term, having had a pregnancy is protective. So, um, but, but we, it, it's difficult to like tease out the different contributions from, from uh, pregnancy, from infertility and from ART treatment or the stimulation. I think overall, I mean, as I, I think the point is fair that you can say that those who go through infertility treatment who may never ultimately achieve a pregnancy may be at higher risk than those who achieve a pregnancy, but really what you're comparing, I think, is a fair comparison of pregnancy to pregnancy and looking at whether or not ART increases the risk of breast cancer in that population of patients who used ART to conceive. And I think these data are tremendously reassuring. So what is the next step for this work? The next step uh, is, of course, to, to get that paper uh, published. Uh, and then we are, Infertility uh, and sterility. <laughs> we are working on uh, updating the linkages to have better data to hopefully be able to go into what happens with women who do not achieve a pregnancy and to have some better measures of the amount of treatment that each woman is exposed to. And see if that is associated with breast cancer. A great question. I think there there remains a lot of questions for egg donors specifically who undergo multiple cycles of stimulation. How do we capture whether or not those patients are at greater risk of developing breast cancer? And can you extrapolate large studies looking at birth databases? Can you extrapolate that to say that there's no risk in a donor? I don't know the answer to that. I think overall the data are tremendously reassuring. 
and I think that studies like these need to be done and congratulate you on this fantastic work. Hello, my name is Suzanne Roof. I work at Care Fertility down in Tunbridge Wells in the UK and I'm here today to talk to you about my research project which I had the honour of talking about with you today so I'm looking forward to it very much. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. We're very interested in to hear what you have and I want to share with all our listeners. So why don't you give us a brief summary? Yeah, of course. So um, today I'll talk to you about my research project, which I undertook as part of my master's. Um, and I decided to compare three methods of semen analysis. So I was comparing the manual semen analysis undertaken by an embryologist. And I was looking at the at-home sperm test kit, uh, specifically the Exceed at-home sperm test kit. Um, and then I was also looking at the CASA system, so a computer-assisted semen analyzer. Uh, and this one was the lens hook. So I was comparing the three methods and seeing how well they agreed, if it's something we could use for the future. Did you have a hypothesis going in? Like, why did you make this comparison? So a couple of years ago, just as I was starting out my training, uh, we had a patient come in saying he was coming in for a semen analysis and he had done an at-home sperm test kit, a rather cheap one, I might add. <laughs> and he actually was the one who said, I want to come into the clinic and I'm not sure if I trust the results. And then ping came the idea that I thought, actually, that's quite a good idea for a project and looked into some other ones on the market. And this one is, you know, CE marked. Um, I think it's got some links already with European sperm banks, a few other clinics. So it's something that I wanted to look at and test the agreement and see how well it fared with the results. So you're keeping us in suspense. What did you find? So, drum roll, no. So I'd say the main findings, the concentration between all three was very good. The agreement was very good. I think between, especially between the manual seam analysis and the CASA device, the lens hook, I think the agreement, uh, so when I say the agreement, I decided to look at it from a clinical point of view. So how many times they agreed that either a sample was normal or abnormal. So I think the percentage for that was about 94% of the time with their concentration. So they had a very strong agreement between the CASA and home sperm test kit. It's slightly lower, I think it was around 82, 84%. So the concentration agreement was very good. The motility was not as good. That sat around more about between 50 to 70% between all three of the methods. But motility, as we know, as humans, we're not very good at counting motility either. <laughs> we're not very good at focusing on moving objects as well as immotile objects all in one go. So it's very difficult to determine what really is the gold standard when I'm producing these results. Um, and then I was looking at the morphology, but that was only between the CASA and the manual semen analysis because the home sperm test kit doesn't determine morphology yet. I think it's something they might be working on. So if you determine one of these methods is gold standard, you hopefully can answer my question. Yes. Which direction was the error being made? Were you calling normal people abnormal or ab normal people normal? That depends on the test kit, really, but I think it was more calling abnormal people normal with some of the devices. So the CASA system had a tendency to say that a patient had normal morphology, sperm morphology, when it did not, according to a manual semen analysis anyway, again, which we know can be quite subjective. Um, and it did tend to overestimate the concentration and slightly underestimate with the motility. So that's the things that I kind of picked up on and the CASA device as well, overestimated concentration, but the CASA was, as I said, much more in agreement with the manual seam analysis. That surprises me. So mm. the home tests were overestimating concentration. Yes. Hmm. I would have guessed it was the other way around. Yeah, yeah. Because if I had my druthers, I would rather have it send more people to the office than fewer people. Yes. 
But just to be correct, that's what you found? Yes, yeah. It was saying it was overestimating concentration and underestimating motility most of the time. Right, I worry, I, I agree, I worry a little bit more about it in that direction. I'd almost want it to be in the opposite direction so that people could seek care sooner. I worry that it may lead to delays in accessing care because the male partner may do an at-home test, may say, look, honey, I'm fine, and not uh, present to a fertility clinic soon enough. Yeah, 100%. I think that's what it needs to work on. And I know as I was carrying out this research, I was also um, at the same time someone from XC to an incredibly helpful, lovely team of people. They are working on a new algorithm at the same time, which was much more promising. I could see the results side by side and it was a lot better. So I, I think it's something that they need to improve on. But as you said, if they're overestimating concentration and under underestimating motility, it would also calculate the total motile concentration. So yeah, it would be sometimes saying that something was normal when it was not. So you, your research sounds very rigorous. So is there another reason that you might have found this finding? For example, was there an order in which the men did the semen analysis? No, actually, I didn't have a strict criteria. I didn't have an order, age range. I think ranged between about 20 to 57 years old. Uh, I didn't really have an age range. Um, and I did them all simultaneously at the same time just to ensure everything was. Well, uh, the men must have had two semen analysis, right? So was there randomness to whether they had the home test first or the uh, laboratory uh, test? No, so I wasn't able to give the home sperm test kit to the patients themselves, so I was doing it all simultaneously at the same time. So I would do the manual semen analysis, put the slide into the CASA device, and then put the slide into the home test that's device. That's actually even better. So you were doing this all on the same specimen? Yes, all on the same specimen, yeah. And I did it on 50 samples. So in an ideal world, I would have loved to have done more, but obviously with time constraints, it limited me a bit. But you know, we did it on about 50 samples, yeah, so 50 we, different patients. So I think you alluded to that the, the companies might take this data and change their algorithms to improve the test? Yes, yeah, that's what Exceed are doing at the moment. They, While I was doing my research project, they said they're in the middle of coming up with a new algorithm, um, which, like I said, was promising. It was a lot better. But I think, as we were talking about briefly before, I think these sorts of kits on the market are definitely a step in the right direction for male infertility, especially I do think the awareness of male infertility has become a lot bigger over the past few years. And we still see it, a lot of patients still feel very awkward coming into the clinic. It's a very uncomfortable setting for them. I would say it's a very good start for them, but I wouldn't say it's yet ready to be replaced by a embryologist, andrologist performing the semen analysis. Well, congratulations, this is impactful research. Not, not only do you, did I take something useful out of this in my own clinic, but you're actually convincing a company to do better. Yeah. This, this, <laughs> this is wonderful. <laughs> Thank so, you. But I think the message to all of our listeners is that you know, these, home, these home tests are going to happen. Yes. Um, there's no way we're going to stop it. And, and the benefit of it is we're, we're reaching more people. Yes. But I think we just have to understand the limitations of it. And this goes 100%. a long way for us to understand the limitations. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Always have to understand the limitations. Like I said, step in the right direction, definitely. Um, and they have to be very careful. There are a lot out there on the market when I first started my project deciding which one to use. Um, but this one, like I said, CE marked. It was very reputable, very user-friendly. Um, and, you know, it was very easy to do this project side by side. It was, you know, but as long as people are aware, patients I, have, I just have to ask, this might not be part of your research, but yes. a few patients of mine are using the iPhone to okay. give concentration. Do you, do you believe that that works as well? The iPhone? Yes, they literally would have a magnifying glass on the iPhone and it would look at the concentration of the light going through the a little vial. Oh, wow. And I'm like, 
Wow, that can't be accurate. I'm not sure how accurate that is. I can't comment on it completely. But the, the way the Exceed works is you have the device and the phone acts as a microscope. So the patients can see a video of their sperm sample, um, which, you know, in some cases I imagine is quite interesting for the men. But if it's, you know, not a very good sample, it could be a bit worrying for them. Um, so it acts as the same thing, but obviously it's got very rigorous algorithms that does all the calculations of the motility and concentration. With that one, I'm not so sure. I don't know Amazing how accurate that one is. Can do. Yeah. I was actually amazed when I had COVID that the iPhone could not take my temperature. It would do my pulse acts. Yeah. Um, it can apparently do your semen analysis, but it could not take my temperature. Yeah. <laughs> so it can do all of that, but I'm unable to change the snooze time on my alarm. <laughs> well, you've told me a lot about semen analysis. Somebody can teach you about the snooze alarm. I yeah, yeah I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you very much for coming and joining no, us. No, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Hi, uh, I am Birol Aydin. I am the IVF lab director and scientific director of IVMED Clinic, Kiev, Ukraine, and in the same time, scientific advisor and lab director of Ovogen Egg Bank. We have an international egg bank. So, thank you so much. I am sure it took heroic efforts to get you to come to ESHRA this year with everything that's going on in the Ukraine. And I have to say, as I was reviewing all of the abstracts and trying to figure out who to invite on the podcast. I was sort of horrified and admired what you're presenting. So do you want to talk a little bit about some of the work that you're presenting and I think just some of the some of the challenges that you have faced with the attack on Ukraine from the fertility perspective? Actually, I started work in Ukraine since uh, 2018. So uh, I have experience in many different countries in the world, more than 20 countries actually, but I can say the most lovely country for me, which I found all scientific options, all beautiful people, and all good scientific atmosphere which I can work, that was Ukraine. So people were living there and working there in a peace. There was of course some financial problem, economical problem, like everywhere have. But still, we never consider the Ukraine as a potential place which will be inside of war. Well, since 24th February, like we just back from our regular work, everyday routine lab work to home, and normally we spent our time and we slept. It was a morning 4 a.m. Just I wake up with a big explosion, so it was a big voice. And where where in the Ukraine do you live? In Kiev in Kiev, capital city. So I was shocked what's happened. I just opened the window and I saw everywhere fire. So the first thing, while I'm a lab director, I have a lot of responsibilities. I have so close communication and connection with all patients. I know their histories. I know their stories, their dreams, how difficult for them uh, to collect that money while we are, we are surrogacy and egg donation center. So. Really, those patients suffered so much to came this position just to get a baby. So, while the first thing I thought I should run away to clinic and I should somehow protect their samples. Well, wait, so there's an explosion yeah. at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Your country is being bombed. Yeah. And your first instinct was to go to the clinic. Yeah, I have to say, I'm a person who has always plan B in life. So, I even felt like this kind of situation will happen 
while all countries start to call their citizens because they feel something. But we never consider, as Ukrainian people never consider, because they are living in such situation in East part more than 10 years. So they are used to actually. That's why they said it will stay over there, not will, will not come here even. And did you have, did your center, because I don't think that our center has an emergency plan in place, but did you have something mapped out where in case of emergency you would know exactly what to do? Actually, none of the clinic in Ukraine were not ready for that situation. Everyone were using their storage as a regular base. Some of them, I mean, as center, we are working under FDA registration. While HFA and FDA, because we are international like bank, uh, we have many criteria which we need to follow up. So that's why we had an emergency plan. Also, we had a risk factor management plan. That's why all situation was ready in case of fire, war, and such situation. So before one week then war happened, we already contact with the several Ministry of Health from different countries. In case if there is such situation where we can move the biological material. Actually, I, I feel very thankful to Slovakian government and Slovakian custom, they accept us. So in advance of one week, with all the documents, with all custom process and clinic which will accept us in Bratislava, we were ready. So while explosion is happened and we get information all around of Ukraine is happening, I just ran away to clinic, but we are so busy clinic, in already on the incubator we had up to 20 cases with a different stage of embryos. While we have eight embryologists in my team, none of them were not able to reach because all traffic blocked, people start to make panic, accidents, like you cannot move it. While I was so close, living so close to the clinic, that's why I was able to reach. I start to freeze all embryos in all stage. So like 2 p.m., day 3 embryos, blastocysts, yeah. everything. you just Some freeze everything. Side, whatever. We cancel all embryo transfers on that day. We had egg pickup. We couldn't cancel egg pickup because this is a big risk for people. While it was so scary, but we complete all five egg pickups. Also, we freeze those eggs immediately. And then we have 25 storages. So 25 storage tanks yeah. on site? Yeah. And then what did you do with those storage tanks? So that was not possible to find any kind of transport for that truck or something while everyone has panic. No one is considering to get such risk. While I choose the first four storage to load with my car and four more to my colleague car. Yeah, four more to my colleague car. And then we start to move. So you loaded four embryo tanks into your car, four embryo tanks into your colleague's yeah, car. And yeah. where did you drive to and what was the traffic like? Actually, it was difficult because we were only two person. It's like to move that, to bring the car is so heavy. They are, they are 60 kilograms, like, like not easy. And she was just a lady. But she's so brave lady. Like she helped Women us. are strong. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry? <laughs> I, was, I, said, I was just laughing that you said she's just a lady. And I said women are strong. No, yeah, I'm just, women are, I'm, no, I mean, from not that perspective, but no, I'm just like kidding. such heavy storage, even for me, was so difficult like to get it. And still, also, she has family and child. You know, she she get that risk with, with me to drive to Slovakia such... How far away is Slovakia from Kiev? Yeah. Uh, 
almost 1,200 kilometers from Kiev to Slovakia. Wow. But of course, there was big traffic. Right, big right. I know on the news in the U.S., we just saw lines of cars trying to evacuate and trying to get out. And so you had called, I'm assuming you had called your colleagues in Slovakia and, and said we need to evacuate, we need to get our tanks over to your yeah. clinic, and they welcomed you with yeah, they open arms. Yeah, they us actually. Uh, but it was so difficult to reach Slovakia. Actually, we spent two and a half days from Kiev to reach the Slovakia without any sleeping, any stuff, because there is a line. So right, how long can the tanks, how long can your tanks survive without power? Yeah, those kind of tanks, normally in the lab, we are filling each one week. So each one week can tank can keep like under regular conditions. So that's why there was no risk because we take also additional liquid nitrogen with us in case we are waiting so long, we should fill. So we were totally ready. But that's why I'm saying we had a risk management protocol. Yeah, but you left, so you, you got eight tanks. Yeah. And then what happened with then the other? just slept one day and then we moved again back to Kiev. Oh my goodness, so okay, so then you, you slept and then you went back. Yeah. We go in it, we bring all of them in it three times. Wow, how long did that take you? So it was uh, three days per? 15 days. Oh my goodness. I, I can't even, I can't even fathom the dedication and just the, the stress and everything that goes into moving that. Um, and you're one center in the Ukraine. How many fertility centers are there in the Ukraine? In Ukraine total, around 60 fertility centers in all Ukraine. Uh, but actually, like, part of them was in a critical place, like Kharkiv, like at that part, Odessa, for them, almost was impossible to move anywhere. So, right. Actually, for each clinic. I mean, this is kind of station every people has family. As you know, family is the first. Of course. I was alone in Kiev, so for me, I mean, I didn't consider the risk for my life. Actually, from one side there is a one life, but from another side there is up to 50,000 embryos over there in storage. And I am considering each of them as a life. So that's why it needs such... I mean, I think your patients in your clinic are incredibly lucky to have had you as the lab director taking such incredible care of those embryos. Actually, like when I get such decisions, because this is self-decision, I in such time I cannot get patient consent. I cannot call them. I cannot give them information to ministry. So. How did you message the patients? So once the embryos were, I, I would imagine that the patients having, knowing that they have embryos in storage tanks in the fertility center, I, I can't imagine from the perspective of the patient how stressful that must have been. So how we load this process actually, I call our management and I say, if you have possibility, just send email message of all patients. I don't want to disturb them while they have a difficulties. Right. I say to just give my number to all patients. Oh my goodness. So, of course, all road my phone was ringing. I made a conversation with a thousand of patients during the road. Wow. I tried to explain. Of course, it was still risky. You know, you are going to the bike ride. You can still make accident. They can bomb you. Right. They can stop you. So, that's why I consider 
which is more risk to keep storage in Ukraine or to take over there? Because I couldn't imagine if something happened, what will be my position as legally and ethically, you know? So right. Right. I mean, I'd like to think that if something had happened, that legally and ethically, it would fall under this, what we call in the U.S. is Good Samaritan, that you are doing the very best that you can with the very best of intent for your patients. But I, I just, I can't imagine the, the stress of having your country under siege, under attack, and driving those tanks to safety. I mean, I think that's a true hero. So, and I'm so, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm really, I'm speechless. Like, I, I really don't have words to say other than I, I think what you did is amazing, and I'm so glad that you actually submitted it as an abstract to ASHRA to, I think, bring awareness to the challenges that you face. Obviously, the wartime challenges in Ukraine, which are horrific, um, but I think also looking at that through the fertility lens and and that additional layer of the protection of our patients' future families. But just one thing I want to add. Actually, like, if we are searching hero, I am not for sure. So the, the, the main hero now still in Ukraine, uh, almost 80% of embryologists, lab directors, still they are in Ukraine. Still they are under such risk they are working. Still they are trying to protect all I think okay we can we can argue about that but I think you are all I think it's an incredible dedication to our profession and to the field at large so actually it's so stressful for me because I didn't move just like just the storage I move also my team so all all girls who is working in our team I was able to bring to Slovakia but boys of course I couldn't do nothing but still, we, we start to continue as international leg bank to Slovakia, but so difficult with the emotion of them. While they are every day receiving, just today in Asia, we have good here. Also, we have many organizations here. One of person from my hand lose the uncle because they killed. So every day we are receiving such information and for them so difficult to live. What is most difficult Risky actually, people start to get used to it, and this is most dangerous things. Well, now, if someone dies, they are just considering as a normal, it is war, but it's not. Right. You have to understand that it's not. Yeah, I, I, I think that's horrific when something that is so tragic becomes commonplace in every day that it becomes the new normal, and I think that that's just not okay. Well, thank you so much for um, taking the time to come on the podcast to talk to us. It's a pleasure and truly an honor to meet you. And I'm really inspired by the work that you've done and you're doing. And I wish you and your family and all of your patients and all of your staff and all of their family the very best. I just just wish you glory for you, my So Because those beautiful people deserve that. They deserve to, like every good people, they also deserve to leave their country with peace and happiness. I could not agree more.
so thank you. And that's a wrap. I hope everyone has had fun attending Esher with us virtually. It really was terrific. I learned a lot. I'm sorry you couldn't partake in the Italian culture, but I hope this podcast will uh, fulfill your appetite. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.